0: summer children from across the stormy and tempestuous seas you found another episode of the podcast keep this noise i'm logan johnson and seated around the table to my left is greg marchant hi and to my right nathaniel johnson
1: hi for some reason i thought i was gonna have to say my name i don't know why i was so off the beat there
0: well we did it before when we were all in the same room but now that we're here i'm like kind of trying i don't know i've been toying with the idea too, just like maybe like open the curtain a little bit and pay attention to the man behind it i've been thinking maybe we should like really workshop our intro and just get something that has like a really good flow to it well
1: i usually have like a bad take or a bad joke that i try to do and so when you said my name i thought you were just trying to rob me of that and just take it completely away (laughs) so
2: usually usually what you do is you make an inane comment on what just happened (laughs) And I'm going to steal that from you by saying this way is probably pretty good, because the less people hear of my voice, the better, because it sounds awful on recordings. See,
1: You say that, and so does literally every person on planet Earth with half a brain.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wait till you've done a year and a half of these, and then the sound of your voice begins to sound not just familiar, but also you begin to realize that that's actually the voice you've been hearing in your head for years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird feeling. (laughs) Yeah,
0: not great, not Mm. great.
1: Speaking of the voice you hear in your head, uh, when you like, hold
0: on, we're not there yet. That's my favorite Bright Eyes album. Sorry, it took me <laughs> okay. a second to get to that joke. No, you're good. I was just lagging like a Dell 2005 computer.
1: <laughs> See, that joke was better than the Bright Eyes joke.
0: Mm, depends on who you are,
1: really. <laughs> what I was going to say is, you know, when like you read and like you hear the voice in your head reading along. Sometimes, if you're like paying any sort of attention to what's going on in your brain. Do you ever, like, realize that when the shouting, like, you're reading a shouting part, the voice in your head isn't any louder, and when it's whispering, it's not any quieter? It's all the same, but something in you is telling you
0: that it's shouting? That's actually not true for me. I jerk back when the book shouts at me. Not a fan. <laughs> oh, okay. That was a that was a joke, listeners at home. Speaking of things that are no wait that's a bad transition this book is not
2: a joke man um this book also hey. doesn't ever shout no Logan, true. it's
1: we've been doing podcasts for a long but, time together is it time for like the first second take of peep this noise no i don't think so i think oh, we're okay.
0: off to a real good start but now you've got me second guessing myself and the <laughs> listeners so that
1: we can get the second take I don't know. That's what The I Second Guest is for, is The Second Take.
0: Maybe we should just run with it, because what? this is raw, this is real, this is right. This I is going to
1: be your next podcast, is The Second Guest with Logan Johnson. And I
0: don't want to get room tone again. Speaking of famous literary characters who don't get room tone a second time, or a first, actually, coincidentally, uh, today we're talking about The Old Man and the Sea, and in that book, I assure you, The Old Man never collects room tone for his podcast. Um... So, spoilers. yeah, speaking of which, we are going to spoil this book. And I think one of the best ways to do that, something we haven't really done on the podcast before, but I think would be helpful is to spoil the thing and just kind of like walk through for people who didn't read the thing or, yeah. or do it uh, and just kind of like walk through a general overview. So I'll, I'll give the soft pitch on the old man in the sea.
2: Uh, go ahead, Greg. If you don't want spoilers for our listeners, go, uh, go and read it. I listened to it as an audiobook and it's two and a half hours to listen to. So um, it's not it wasn't bad. Think we can beat two forty five? No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean we probably could, but yeah. we're not going to. Um, okay, cool. That's good to know that it's it's relatively short. Yeah. Um so if you have a really long commute, you might even be able to squeeze in both. Um yeah, let's let's talk about the old man on the sea. So so this is a book written, uh Greg told me right before we started recording, actually, at least partially while Hemingway, the author, was was living in Cuba. So this is a story of a Cuban fisherman, specifically an old man, and it's also a story of the sea. So this is a story where the old man goes out to sea to go fishing. Um, He's a fisherman by trade, and he hooks a big one, maybe the biggest one. And I don't mean of his career, I mean possibly ever. (laughs) He just hooks a massive fish, and it's the story of his battle with this fish and eventually reeling it in and and overcoming the fish and, and bringing it back to his home settlement. Um, not all in one piece. Again, spoilers for the book. Uh, this thing gets taken to town by sharks on his trip back to his fishing village. Right.
1: The reason for that, in case anybody's wondering, is his boat is not big enough to put the fish inside of it. So he has to strap it to the side of the boat, and basically, the boat and the dead fish swim alongside each other. And the sharks are like blood in the water.
2: It's free real estate, <laughs> and because uh because the fish had taken him so far from so far from shore he uh he it took him it took him a day and a half to get back to shore, yeah, i think is something to that effect, so the sharks had the sharks had this fish for a day and a half, yeah, and sharks
0: can be pretty relentless in their pursuit, yeah, much like men what what are we getting into the hot takes i'd We'll get there. We'll talk about the sharks. I mean,
2: that could be a literal take on a literal take on the story. Yeah, too. he
0: literally pursues that fish and holds on to it for way longer than the sharks hold on to him. That's, so, yeah. Um, but let's uh, before we get into this, Greg, you did a fair amount of reading on Hemingway before this. Was there anything that kind of stuck out to you that you wanted to add as background knowledge on him or on this?
2: History? Um, he he had a he had a pretty interesting career um he he was primarily for uh like the first half of his career he was primarily a reporter a, a journalist he he covered um he covered the battle of normandy and a whole bunch of other things he fought in he fought I'm sorry, in world he war 1 what <laughs> yeah he covered he covered the battle of normandy apparently no reporters were allowed uh were allowed off the off the boats Um, on the first day, so he it wasn't like he it wasn't like he you know stormed the beaches or something like that. But yeah, still, yeah the the reporters weren't weren't allowed in there for that part apparently. But he uh um he he was there. Um he he was so he was involved with reporting in World War Two and several other several other world conflicts throughout or several other like. Uh, military conflicts throughout his career um and toward the uh toward the end of his career um i think shortly after he wrote this he um he had a series of injuries and uh, he had a series of injuries and personal tragedies that seemed to have uh set him on a downward spiral um uh, as far as mental health and the only uh the only mental health treatment he was given was um apparently electroshock therapy um to try to try and uh help him get straightened out this this was this was during the 1950s he he died in 1961 um but yeah his his mental health kind of spiraled out of control he didn't really have any good uh didn't really have any good help for that and he his philosophy in writing was all about being being a good writer is all about being in isolation like it's it's an isolated profession and you know a lot of a lot of time alone um a lot of personal tragedy a lot of um a lot of personal tragedy a lot of witnessing tragedy um reflecting on tragedy <laughs> all all of these things um and then personal injuries that kind of took away his ability to do a lot of the things that he would normally do i imagine those all played into uh played into his uh death by uh by suicide in his home in Idaho that that would be my background on hemingway i i would like to contribute
1: to the background here as well um I don't think we've mentioned that he did win the Nobel Peace Prize for this work. Oh.
2: Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, not
0: just the Nobel Prize either. He also took a Pulitzer Prize yes. for fiction yeah. for The Old Man and the Sea. Like, these 19
2: are big Yeah, oh, he also said The Old Man and the Sea was the best piece of writing he could ever create.
0: Pretty much everybody agrees with him on that. He took like I said the Pulitzer in 53 and the Nobel Prize in 54. 54. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, the, for these works of, of fiction. Um another interesting note, he like you said Greg, he did uh do war reporting, he covered mm-hmm. wars and battles. And if the name Ernest Hemingway is tickling at the back of your mind, and it's not for *The Old Man in the Sea*, you might be thinking of another novel he wrote called *A Farewell to Arms*, oh, yeah. which is based on his experiences loosely in the war and some of the things that he saw. Um, pretty fantastic novel. Oh, I found L- out a little bit more of a bummer.
2: I found out he um, he oh, fictionalized God. one of his uh, one of his like uh, scary life events in there. Apparently he, uh, his first, uh, his first child, um, uh, was, uh, his, his wife at the time had a difficult, uh, labor, a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous delivery. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, apparently he fictionalized that event in, uh, in, a in, uh, Farewell to Arms. Really? Yeah. Uh, at least that's, at least that's what's. Or maybe it wasn't in A Farewell to Arms. He fictionalized it in one of his, uh, yeah, one that, of his that books. Yeah, that happens though. in A Farewell to Arms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So that's, I, I didn't realize that that was like a direct pull from his life, but that makes sense.
2: Yeah. That, that was a pull from his life. Yeah.
0: I wasn't saying, really, that's in A Farewell to Arms. I was saying, oh, really, that happened to
2: him. Okay. But it makes sense. I haven't read A Farewell to Arms. I'm that just, part yeah. of the
0: book is, is really well constructed. And so that actually doesn't surprise me. Much, okay. That, that was that he had
1: a little bit of experience with that cool there's um, one more thing i would like to add before we dive into the actual text um you mentioned that he was a journalist and that obviously shapes his writing style um i'm glad that i know that now because he reminded me of another author whose work i've read uh by the name of gabriel garcia marquez who yeah. is for lack of a Better way to describe it, he's like the Spanish equivalent of Ernest Hemingway. He, is, he was a journalist who has gone on to write award-winning works of both fiction and nonfiction in the length of uh, novels. Um, the only piece I've ever read was an English translation of a book called News of a Kidnapping, which details how the uh, drug lord Pablo Escobar uh, kidnapped nine different Colombian people and held them as hostages against the government so he could continue the drug trade. Um, yeah, and it's as intense as it sounds, and also really boring at parts, because sometimes you're just a hostage who plays Nintendo for, like, six hours a day. Um, (laughs) and that's just a thing that happens. You just play Nintendo with your captors, apparently.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, not to downplay people being kidnapped, but I feel like I could have swung that. Like... (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> feel <laughs> like I could convince them to get on some Mario Kart. They're probably pretty bored too, right? right? Like, that's the thing, right? Like, like
1: it's obviously a terrifying situation, but there's also nothing that either you or your captors are doing right. all day, right, right, right. right. And yeah. so, even though it's a horrible situation, everybody's just kind of bored. Really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I one of the things that I not to kind of like go too far on on Ernest Hemingway here. Um, he's actually kind of famous for his style of writing, which is he called what did he call it, the iceberg I'm gonna forget it, but he called it the iceberg or like it was like the iceberg approach or something. Yeah, the iceberg approach or something like that. If you look if you Google Hemingway iceberg, you're oh the iceberg theory. That's what he called it. Oh yeah. And it was his it was like a really like understated and really terse style of writing, which was like kind of characterized by like an economy of language. Um, where he used as few words as possible to get his point across. So a lot of these things come off as really direct and really sudden, and that was the style, and I think that part of that is almost undoubtedly comes from his background as a journalist, right, and and trying to report the facts. But it's, it's a very interesting thing, and that style has gone on to be vastly influential in modern writing. So influential, in fact, that um, we did an episode on Phoebe Bridger's Phoebe Bridgers is part of a super band called Boy Genius and they have a song called Ketchum Idaho which is the the town Hemingway was lived in lived in when he took his own life. Um and so that I like even that has gone on to influence like numerous things like if you think about Phoebe Bridgers' style and things like that and the way that a lot of her songwriting and especially her her singing, her vocalizations are understated that's a, a tribute to Hemingway in in one of her songs that we didn't listen to.
2: If I can add something about writing in general this uh this kind of iceberg theory to writing has come to define uh good writing for uh for most people, especially in um especially in college and stuff like that and like this is this is the type of writing that most people would say is good.
0: Yeah to be a little more specific, um it's become incredibly characteristic of American writing yes uh so, so this is the american style
1: i'm not sure i totally understand it um so i get that it's very direct and use as few words as possible but is there anything more to it than that
2: uh you uh the idea of you show don't tell like uh he 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 makes statements but he makes statements to to create a visual Mm. Like he he gives visual cues in his writing. He he doesn't tell what happens. He he shows what's going on.
1: Right. So I mean, even though the old man says at various times, "I'm so tired," more we see that he's really tired by like his hand cramping up. And... Yeah. Right. Is th- is that what we're saying? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Another another term for the iceberg theory is the theory of omission, or this idea that the more you cut out of your writing. Use as few words as possible to convey as much as possible. Say as much as you can with as, as little as possible.
1: So the idea then becomes that you want to show the most relevant pieces so that the audience can see everything that's under the surface without you needing to spell it out. Basically.
2: Right. Um, sorry, if you've ever had a professor uh, in college or a teacher in high school tell you, oh, you should write twice as much as you actually mean to turn in and then pare it down until you, like if you're writing a one page uh, a one page short essay you should write two pages or three pages and then trim off everything extra that that falls under this theory that's that's where that comes from
1: I don't think I've ever heard that before but oh
2: I, I got really it fre- I got it frequently um
0: I didn't have a lot of professors who taught me how to write very well ah yeah, my my best writing professor I had said basically a similar thing. He just said, write it all out, and then cut out everything you don't need, right? And yeah. then whatever length you have from there, then you work with that. If you need more, work from there. But always write, and then most of your editing time should be spent cutting things out, not adding new ideas in. Um, and it's, it's based on this idea of Hemingway. Um, we've kind of talked a lot about him. Uh, one more interesting, fun tidbit. There's a crater on Mercury. That is named in his honor. So that's also. That's cool. Yeah, that's also kind of a thing that Hemingway has going for him. So, stepping aside from Hemingway, let's get into The Old Man and the Sea just a little bit. Um, So, our first question is The Old Man and the Sea is the story of a battle between a man and his aquatic quarry. Aside from these two main players, what side characters stood out to you? What did you make of them? What were your thoughts on the boy and your thoughts on the men at the end of the story who saw the remains of the old man's fish?
1: Joe DiMaggio. My favorite side character in the story.
2: <laughs> That's a good point, actually. The great DiMaggio. Yes, the, sorry,
1: yes, the great DiMaggio. The great DiMaggio, yeah. Um, he was my favorite side character because he he's never actually in the book. We don't ever, like, hear anything he's ever said, really. Like, he's never visits. But he's omnipresent in the old man's life, Um, which I find fascinating. There's actually two—I've been holding the book open to two spots that I want to— Talk about with DiMaggio here because I'm so excited about this. Uh the first one is about midway through the story. He is tired. He's been battling this fish the whole time. And he says Do you believe the great DiMaggio would stay with a fish as long as I will stay with this one? He thought. I am sure he would, and more since he is young and strong. Also, his father was a fisherman. But would the bone spur hurt him too much? Now, it's established earlier in the book that DiMaggio has a bone spur that's been making it so he can't play baseball as effectively. Um, But here this old man is fighting this fish, and he's thinking about, like, his idol. Like, the man that, like, he basically, like, would kiss the ground he walks on. And he's like, nah, like, DiMaggio could do a better job than I could. Like, surely he could. He's young. He's strong. His dad was a fisherman like me oh, but wait, the bone spur, maybe he wouldn't be as good as I am. And there's just constantly, like, this is normal in the book to have this back and forth with him.
0: Well, this, like, mid-2005 tension of WWJD, what would Joe DiMaggio do? Yes, yes. A <laughs> very famous thing we all saw scrawled in the middle of bathroom stalls.
1: <laughs> yes, this is very good. Uh, But I want to point out that he just looks up to DiMaggio in, like, this kind of delirious way when he's fighting the fish, and it happens a lot. Um, But back before he sets out for this voyage, he's talking with the boy, and uh, the boy is talking about baseball with him. And the boy says, in reference to uh, the team that DiMaggio is on, they lost today. And the old man says, that means nothing. The great DiMaggio is himself again. And the boy says, they have other men on the team. Like, the team is not DiMaggio. And then the old man says, naturally, but he makes the difference. And this is, I think, emblematic of a lot of what goes on in the story, because throughout the book, the old man is like, well, I'm going to take in this fish if it kills me. Wish I had the boy with me. Ah, well, he's not here. I'm going to do this by myself, because I am great, like the great DiMaggio. He never calls himself great. In fact, he's very self-debasing. But, like, he's always trying to be the greatest fisherman, even if he never says it. Like, nobody goes after, like, a fish this big unless they're trying to be great at what they do. Well,
0: I also think about this in connection with some of the other things that happen in this book, right? I think about the way that he fights the fish and the way that he, he has this, like you said, this fixation on on I think, like, I think about, like, Yes, there are other men on the team, but this is the one who makes the difference, right? That quote. And I think about how in everything that he does, he is pushing the limits. And he's he's essentially saying, like, I'm the, the valuable one on this team, right? Not in, like, necessarily the most selfish way, but a lot of the the things that happen in this story are centered around this idea that he goes too far out, Right. A large part of his time is spent cursing the fact that he ever went as far as he did to catch a fish as big as he did, right? But, of course, you know, Joe DiMaggio doesn't hit ha- a baseball halfway, right? He hits it all the way out of the park, right? And so I think that there's this kind of thing where, like, in this idea of, like, the team member that makes the difference, you get this, this kind of weird, like, self-motivation of the old man as he goes out there and, and kind of tries to, to force himself to go farther and be stronger and be better even though he's quite old
1: well it's interesting too because i think it's the yankees that dimaggio is on it is okay thank you um the yankees have lost whatever game they were playing and the old man says ah that doesn't matter dimaggio killed it out there and it's like no but like what's the point of him doing well if the team didn't succeed like what does it matter
0: it's also like in a way a bit of foreshadowing to what happens in this story because this does not end well for the man the man loses the game right he catches the fish but he loses the game right right and so he becomes in that way kind of like Dimaggio himself
2: greg you have something you want to add to this i so there's this thing that happens in this book that feels really reminiscent to uh, when people tell stories about sports um, which is which is when you tell a story about sports even if uh, even if the focal characters lose the the focal characters spend all of this time um, like your your focal characters, the heroes of the story, will spend all of their time um showing. How they're pushing the limits, like they're they're pulling out they're pulling out the stops they're playing at the edge of whatever sport it is they they're working at the very edges of their skill, and it's a celebrated thing, and I think this story uh for me was caught between the idea of celebrating that kind of determination and tenacity and just um, and just desire to push the limits to do what uh to do what you feel is your calling in life and the idea that life isn't uh life isn't fair and that kind of idealism can uh can affect the can affect your capability to pursue your life further <laughs> because if if you had if he had caught, say, a smaller fish, not as far out, he could have gotten it back home, and uh, and maybe started to feel like, oh, my luck is turning around.
1: Well, doesn't he even catch a dolphin at some point in this? And use it to he
2: eat? he can he consistently catches. Uh, he can well, by smaller fish I meant a, a smaller game fish, right, right, like right. A, a smaller, uh, a, a smaller version of the of he he catches a marlin, right. A, I'm with you. Yeah.
1: My point is, he catches a dolphin, right? Like
2: a he, small dolphin, right? But like,
1: like, it's a dolphin. Like he can take that home as his catch of the day. Like this is not something that he should just be like, oh, the dolphin's not good enough. Like he he throws away all of his other opportunities. I I
2: will that. mention I will mention something that comes up in the story, which is where he says, which is at some point he's committed too much, mm. um, in order too much to do that he he has hopes that he can bring in this fish at uh, at a certain point and he uh, and he takes in the rest of his line yes because if he were to that that fish bit the the bottom of his line like the right. the deepest depth of his line
1: and he doesn't want the line to get cut by the other fish yeah. swimming
2: around yeah he so. he doesn't have the option of yeah he doesn't want it to get cut by the other fish swimming around but he doesn't have the option of cutting his line up where he's at and starting over because he in order to in order to fish he needs to have that you know 300 he needs to have the whole 300 fathoms of line available in order to do what he's doing okay and he already had 150 of it devoted to the fish so if he cut it he would only be able to assuming that you need as much basically basically how he describes it basically you need as much in the boat as you have underwater gotcha. if he cut it he could only fish at the very shallowest depths where there uh where there's not likely to be any big fish he he had committed a lot of his line at that point so he that the other line that he kept pulling in smaller stuff in was a was a little Uh, was a little short line that he had just as a spare to bring in stuff for him to eat. Gotcha. Yeah. This
0: idea of him committing too much, right, of being too fully in the game is really interesting. I think about this in connection to DiMaggio and, and other professional athletes, right? This idea that, well, if you're in the NBA, you may as well play for real. You may as well play for keeps in the NBA, right? Because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense for you. To be there, right? Like, if you're not going to give it all to the sport, what are you even doing in the NBA, right? Well,
1: this is why discussion about DiMaggio having the bone spur is relevant, um, both in, like, the actual media at the time and in this book. Because the question is whether or not DiMaggio is going to play or even be able to play with the bone spur. Like, can he continue to commit his all with this injury?
0: Well, the question is, too, like... In what world should we expect a guy like Joe DiMaggio to play anything with a bone spur, right? (laughs) And the answer is that his teammates depend on him and that they need him and that he is the Yankees' chance, right? And so there's this. He's not the team. Yes, but. He makes the difference? Yes, but in the athletic discourse, right? Whether or not he makes the difference isn't important. The question is. Should somebody who could potentially make the difference, I say in scare quotes, even be allowed to play with an injury that serious? We, in like athletic parlance, you hear people joke all the time, put me in, coach, which is this joke that, like, I'm hurt, I know I'm hurt, and I know I will be seriously injured if I continue to play, but coach, it's homecoming night, like, put me in. Like, you know, I can make the catch. And then players like that, unfortunately, often end up Permanently injured from their, especially in American football, right? Permanently injured from their involvement in the game. And so I think you start to like see this reflected a little bit this idea that, well, you've committed this far, you may as well keep committing, even though it's going to kill you.
1: Well, it's a sunk cost fallacy, and we all kind of do this in life. Um, I've known a lot of people who my degree was in philosophy. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't stop with a bachelor's degree in philosophy um, because I know a lot of people who did get to the end of their degree in philosophy and they didn't have plans after and they were paying for their for their college um, either out of their own pocket or with student loans, not with like grant money. And they kind of had this philosophy of, well, I'm three out of four years in better finish that fourth year even though I can't do anything with my finished bachelor's degree in philosophy unless I continue to get higher education. But I'm not going to get higher education, but I'm so close to being done, I may as well finish and spend another year and all that time and all that money, um, even though it wasn't necessarily going to get them anything more than what they'd already done.
2: There, If I can add something to that, um, one of the things that I've thought about with education is the the like modern American philosophy around higher education is you do it in order to and uh, you do it in order to improve your potential career or mm-hmm. something like that. but another another philosophy that I've heard that's a little bit different is that education is about becoming a better person. Um, which is where that idealism of pushing your limits comes in. It's like, whatever the cost, right? if I, it, whatever the cost, if I push my limits, I become better. Right. And I think there is a lot and, to be
1: said for that.
2: Yeah. It's not a popular thing. It's not a profitable thing. It doesn't really match the ethos of our society necessarily. But it, uh, but it is an admirable thing, and that's again comes back to where I fell on this story. Like the, he was doing something that was hopeless. I got some spoilers for this book before I went in. I knew that he didn't make, he didn't get the fish back to shore and land the
1: cat. Oh, I was so happy when he caught it, though. And then when the sharks got it, I was like, well, that's a
2: bummer. Yeah, because you're happy that he succeeded in in his goal, you're happy that he actually, that he actually, you know, pushed his limits and proved that he could do this thing that he set out to do. You're happy that he kind of turned his luck around, but it didn't serve any practical purpose, but you're still happy for him. You still think it's cool in the, um, in our like modern U S culture. I think that that kind of attitude is only applied to sports but that that might be why it reminds me of a like it's only applied to competition and uh sports and things like that which might be why i uh you know felt like i was getting some sports story vibes from this well and
1: that and i think the incessant comparisons to baseball and dimaggio specifically helped with that yeah
2: it definitely did but um but like you said, you were happy for him when he mm-hmm. landed the when he landed the fish. And even even though you pretty much know that this isn't going to end well. Especially if you're reading through the book and at the point he lands the fish, you've got a third of the book left, basically. You you know this isn't gonna end yeah, well. Yeah, you don't
1: have five pages. Something's gotta happen in the next forty.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know it's not gonna end well. It doesn't stop uh it doesn't stop you from feeling like this is a cool accomplishment like this is a this was a good thing basically so that's that that's where i land on this book again is i i'm torn between is this a message about the futility of doing the impractical or is this a story that celebrates the that um that celebrates pushing their limits in that kind of sports story fashion
0: yeah, and like some of the best writing, I imagine that this falls somewhere in the middle, right? That it, it does a little bit of both of those tasks. One of the things I want to talk about is the men at the end of the story who see his fish, right? Who see the skeleton of the fish, right? And they yeah. basically are like, "Wow!" And they go and measure it,
2: yeah, and then they like, start speculating on how. And don't they like hang up the fish head
1: in like some tavern or something? Like, mm-hmm. like this is a big deal to the community.
0: And this is this becomes really interesting, especially when we start talking about this in context of a a traditional sports story right i think about this in connection with with kobe bryant right and i i don't want to talk like ill of kobe bryant or at least not to a a weird degree considering his recent passing but um one of the things that kind of came out about kobe bryant near the end of his life was kind of how difficult of a teammate he could be Right. And especially as Kobe Bryant aged, people who aren't aren't familiar or out of the loop in sports, Kobe Bryant was a phenomenal athlete um, and he played basketball very, very well, Um, was considered arguably the greatest of all time. Um, In fact, if you walk into a sports bar tonight and sit down for some Buffalo Wild Wings and you say to somebody at the table across from you or two tables across from you, depending on how your your COVID-19 seating is, and you say Kobe Bryant was the best of all time, you either get fervent agreement or. A very strong argument it's still a very debated thing he was he was that good at the game and he he transformed the way it was played a little bit but uh well kind of well known near the end of his career was how difficult of a teammate he could be and in the early parts of of Kobe Bryant's career that was a little bit of a different thing because when Kobe Bryant was unarguably the best player on the court at any given time he could kind of be a jerk a little bit right he could kind of be like hey. I need you, teammate, to give more right now in this moment. I need you to show up earlier for practice. I need you to do better. Because Kobe Bryant was largely carrying the team. Near the end of his career, that became uh, less and less true, especially as injury and and age began to mark his, his descent out of basketball. And I think one of the things that Kobe Bryant kind of gets left with at the end of his legacy is this reputation, yes, as an incredible basketballer, but also as kind of this old man who's in the sport, right? And so as Kobe Bryant's body starts to fail him and as his kind of like tough, not even tough, but kind of like mean teammate attitude starts to not work as much, people are still continually uh, oppressed. Yes, (laughs) but also impressed by his athletic ability. Um, And I think that becomes kind of like really interesting here because when you have these fishermen in the story who are are impressed at the end of this. None of that really matters for the old man in the sea because he is the old man in the old man in the sea because he is so tired. Right. And his body just doesn't have what it takes to be a fisherman anymore.
1: If I can actually read the end of the book, I think mm-hmm. that might be, um, that might be worthwhile. There's some tourists who come into town and in there. Uh, they're getting food at a restaurant and they see the skeleton of the fish Uh, and it goes, "'What's this?' she asked a waiter and pointed to the long backbone of the great fish that was now just garbage waiting to go out with the tide. "'Tiburon,' the waiter said, "'E-shark.' He was meaning to explain what had happened. "'I didn't know sharks had such handsome, beautiful-formed tails.' "'I didn't either,' her male companion said. And then it cuts from there and it says, "'Up the road, in his shack, the old man was sleeping again. "'He was still sleeping on his face.' And the boy was sitting by him, watching him. The old man was dreaming about the lions. And that's how the book ends. And he's dreaming about something completely unrelated to fishing and the sea, while everybody else in town is like, wow, look at this fish.
2: Yeah, well, he's dreaming about a memory of something that he had when he had kind of a different job Mm -hmm. uh, on on a boat way back in the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's just totally different, right? It's not the same thing. Right? It's a part of his life, but he's not it's not about him fishing anymore. It's about him looking at the lions, right? And about this beautiful African distant fantasy land as far as he's concerned.
0: Yeah, and that starts to become a really interesting thing when we consider it in context of like the old man being out of his game or out of his sport a little bit, right? Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the old man and the sea is this dynamic between the old man and, and these supporting characters. We didn't really get a chance to, to talk about the young man, uh, a bit, but in the interest of time, I, I think maybe people can, can kind of look a little bit on their own into the relationship between the old man and the young man as kind of a passing of the torch, um, and kind of as, as that form of the character. Let's, let's talk about the actual struggle between the old man and the sea, um, So what stood out to you about this? As the story progresses, how does the relationship between the old man and the sea change? How does it evolve? Um, And what about those changes was impactful or significant to you? So
1: did you guys see that video I sent you um, of the
2: deep sea fishing? We, i didn't have a chance to watch it we sorry. can't
0: do that did you watch the 20 minute youtube video no thing no no it was like a on? 30 second clip
2: oh no i did not see it um they pulled <laughs> the this, bad they, forum they, to... <laughs> no no i know they
1: pull in this uh 500 pound fish and it's large enough that a person could crawl inside of it like in through its mouth like that's how big this thing is
2: yeah a group it was a grouper i remember from the thumbnail and groupers are uh deep deep sea predators okay the old man, or They're maybe also the,
1: the ones people.
0: who sleep with the band. Yes. Um,
1: <laughs> thank you for School of Rock references. Um, the the fish. Sorry, is we real... need
0: to address this. You know, groupies. Yes, 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 okay, know. you know that's yes. not like a School of Rock thing. The that's three just a group. Yes. Now that's a School of Rock reference. What I was saying was just like a, a rock right, music. The, I refer... thought that okay. You were... Yeah. No. No. I just wanted to clarify. School <laughs> of Rock's been on the brain recently. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> we might have to watch it. Anyway.
1: Oh, <laughs> Anyway, um I think at some point in the book it's estimated that the fish weighs 1500 pounds.
2: Yeah, if I remember right, he says this weighs 15 it weighs it probably weighs 1500 pounds, maybe more.
1: That's insane. Like when you think that a 500-pound fish is big enough that like a person could reasonably crawl into the mouth of it and like hang out there, like a 1500-pound fish must be huge. And he spends, like, half of his battle with it not knowing anything about the fish, other than that it's strong. He doesn't see it. He doesn't know how how powerful it is. He doesn't know how much it weighs. He doesn't know what kind of fish it is. He could have captured the Megalodon, for all he knows. <laughs> like, the Meg could be on his line.
2: No, but he is a master fisherman, and he knows just by touching the line that it's a marlin. Right. mm <laughs> But I I don't know whether I'm saying that sarcastically or not.
1: <laughs> no, but but the point is, he goes, "Oh, I've caught a big one." Yeah,
2: because it's not a marlin, right? It, it's a it's a swordfish, which is in the marlin family. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's it, then at the end
0: when the tourists say it's a tiburon shark, they're just totally just talking, right? Uh,
1: I don't okay. know nearly enough about aquatic life to say yes. No, they, actually, I take that back. I am an expert on marine biology. I am the only qualified marine biologist in the world. I know more about marine biology than anyone.
0: Do we
2: sharks, have Richard Dawkins guest starring? <laughs> the spoilers, spoilers for limit for a little bit of uh, biology uh, per per Greg Marchant. <laughs> biology. Uh, sharks spoilers. don't. Sharks don't have a lot of bones. <laughs> gotcha. They. uh... So they they don't they don't have as far as I know they don't have a spine they have cartilage oh sure makes sense I think the only bones in sharks are are their jaw so then the the
0: the tourists would be completely incorrect
2: which is not surprising so
0: then
1: fish though do have a ton of bones don't they depends on depends on the (laughs) sharks are fish right but yeah it
2: depends on the type of fish you have when you hear people talk about bony fish and cartilaginous fish sharks are cartilaginous fish yeah, okay. and then like trout are are bony fish
1: so i've had a lot of trout in my life and they those bones are spaced like less than a centimeter apart like those rib bones right that's probably not the right term for it but like
2: they're pretty techn- uh, tight yeah they them. yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bones in trout there's yeah. a there's a lot of bones in a lot of fish that's yeah. what
1: i was gonna say right so like this yeah. skeletal mass that is like heaved out of the ocean has got to just be like it probably in a weird way looks like a like a comb like you could take these these bones and use them as a massive comb in a way because of how tightly spaced there are and how many there are and with how long it is like I, it's just probably this really impressive sight
0: yeah so as he he reels in this fish we kind of get like He's old, right? So we get to watch his relationship to the sea change the longer he has to put up with this fight, right? Ultimately ending, like Nathaniel said earlier, with, I mean, we can't say for sure, but I'm almost certain as a young man, he dreamed of the sea.
1: Yeah, right? probably.
0: And as an old man, he dreams of African jungle safaris, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm kind of wondering what you guys made of this transition where he, he becomes increasingly disillusioned with the sea and with everything that it has to offer as this goes along, but also kind of kicks himself for that disillusionment. There are two
1: things I like to think about here. Do you remember the part where he's like, okay, my hand's cramping. I got to cut it off. And then he goes, wait, that's insane. (laughs) Like next (laughs) paragraph, Uh, because like my eyes like, flew open, I was like, he's gonna what? <laughs> like, he's not thinking straight. And he goes, I'm not thinking straight. And I'm like, oh god, like I'm glad you caught that. <laughs> right? Um, which is always interesting. Like, have you ever been in those moments where you're so tired or you're so exhausted or so hurt that you like start thinking like really crazy things and then you go, Hold
0: up, hold up. Yeah, but usually it's kind of like and that friend of mine is kinda cute. <laughs> right? It's not like let me chop off my hand. <laughs> not- it's like, do I have a crush on her? Not Time to amputate, right? It's a very different ball game. <laughs> well, I worked a job where I was up all <laughs> Not to <the> summon night. <laughs> Joe DiMaggio again to the podcast, but it's a different
2: ballgame in time. Yes. Oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to sports comparisons in a minute. I'm sure you are. Um,
1: I was gonna say I worked a job where I worked every single night uh, for almost a year. Um, starting at like one in the morning and then usually going till ten ten and then going to school after. And with that uh sometimes i would just be bone weary tired and would like have like crazy like ideas like no i gotta stay awake like maybe if i take a knife and stab my hand that'll work uh, which is just a bad idea in general like you should not take a knife and stab your hand don't you stick awake. that knife in your leg <laughs> yeah don't do that like but like these are the kinds of thoughts that you Oh, have i'm when you're really just mad at
2: i'm really mad at myself and really emotionally distraught i just want to stab myself in the leg wait <laughs> Yeah, no. This is the kind of like it's totally insane.
1: Uh,
0: the- I'm really sad because my lover died. I'm gonna drink this poison. Roman.
2: Too Gia. soon. Yeah, no, I got Too it. Too soon. Too
0: soon. <laughs> <Too> soon. <laughs> 1600s Verona, guys. Too soon.
2: <laughs> um, we we've you've already criticized uh, criticized Kobe Bryant. I don't think you can go there.
0: True. 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 <laughs> if I'm gonna talk dirty on anybody in that play, it's gonna be Tibble. Screw that guy. Anyway,
1: the other half that I want to talk about is um, as I've spent more and more time uh, pursuing my various uh, degrees in my career and being married and having children, there's always this part of me that's like, oh, man, wish I could go back to, you know, when I wasn't doing any of this stuff. And I just was like, you know, trying to find a wife instead of being married, which the insane irony there is during that time of my life when I was trying to find a wife all i wanted was to have a wife and children and be like in the state that i'm in now and i kind of feel like that's where the old man is in a lot of ways like in this weird like transition where like he's not happy now i'd like to clarify i am happily married but like there's always kind of this wistfulness because that was easier than this And I feel like that's kind of what he's doing when he's dreaming of lions. He's like, you were not single for
0: long enough. (laughs) You just, how long was it, dude? Six months? Like, you were not single for long enough. Um,
1: my, My point, though, is, and what I'm trying to get at is, as humans, it's so natural to look at whatever state we're not in as the ideal. Like, it's a real struggle not to view the alternate state as the ideal.
0: Well, the grass is always greener, right? right. Put more simply, right? Yeah. And hey, fun fact out there, are going to drop this hot mic wisdom. <laughs> Welcome to our new segment, hot mic wisdom. <laughs> I'm going to drop this. If the grass is greener on the other side, try watering your lawn. <laughs> stay woke out there everybody (laughs) this concludes hot Mike wisdom man
1: that advice is almost as good as have you tried not being sad for depressed people
0: (laughs) hey one look look this is not to discount things like abuse or really serious situations but sometimes people who are in a bad situation there are things that they can do. Yes, absolutely. And a therapist would say the same thing. So I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds. There is so much
1: to be said for like actually acting and doing stuff.
0: There was way too much criticism of the hot mic wisdom. I think we're gonna have to, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you, the hot mic wisdom was racist. (laughs) It's been canceled. I just milkshake ducked hot mic wisdom.
2: But anyway those are okay. those are my thoughts
1: though <laughs> about like this like transition into him like dreaming of lions,
2: yeah, that makes sense he i uh, i i saw the the way that this progressed in a little bit of a in a little bit of a different a different light the i'll I'll go to the sports comparison first and get it out of the way um uh so I I was a high school athlete. I'm I'm not saying I'm incredibly athletic or anything like that, but I was a high school athlete and from an athletic point of view, when you are uh when you are training really hard and putting a lot of effort into into a sport, you you start to you start to become really metacognitive of your body. Um you start to you start to think about your body in a couple of ways. One is as as a tool and one is uh one is as a tool like what can i uh how uh one one is as a tool like what can i get my body to do and then another one is as a um another one is as a machine like is my body in good repair like what is my body is capable of in the mob uh in the moment um and you kind of uh, and you kind of see both of those sides throughout. That's a consistent thing that you see throughout his uh, throughout his whole progression. Near the end of the story, when everything's kind of falling apart and the sharks are getting his fish, he starts to think, like, what am I capable of? I am no longer capable, uh, my body is not in good enough repair for me to club a shark to death. Which sounds really impressive, but that's like, but then you also see there are athletes like gymnasts, like... An old gymnast is gonna say something along the lines of, my body is no longer in good enough repair for me to uh for me to uh perform uh for for me to perform uh, routine on the rings or something like that. Like my shoulders are no longer in good enough shape for me to for me to suspend my entire body weight from them and throw it. Uh if you're doing the vault, my my uh my joints are no longer capable of uh allowing myself to sprint and then throw myself 30 feet uh 30 feet distant and like 15 feet in the air on the on the vault <laughs> like those things also sound impressive so it, there's kind of there's kind of like uh, like another impressive physical feat like a comparable physical feat to clubbing a shark to death or something like that you you see this throughout and then this change comes like at the beginning he uh at the beginning he's reflecting more uh at the beginning he's kind of reflecting more on the tools he has at hand and at the end he's shifted more to the machine point of point of view like he becomes resigned because he realized that he realizes that the machine he has going can't account for this situation right he he says things frequently in the beginning of the book like oh i'm old and i'm weak
1: but i've got a lot of tricks on my sleeve yeah but then by the end of the book he's like well
2: i'm old and i'm weak and i'm all out of tricks yeah tricks are tools right right and you especially there's a there's a good visual comparison at the end where his tools keep breaking Mm -hmm. tricks are tools and he is all out of tools to deal with the situation and the tools are also what you use to get the machine running correctly when it starts to falter. And when you're out of tools, you're you can't get you can't uh you can't squeeze any more out of the machine. Well there's, there's
1: sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there's something interesting that I've been thinking about a lot as we've been talking today, where he loses the entire fish, right? And it's because it's, and I think part of it is because it's so beautiful that he doesn't want to harm it until he gets to shore. Like, in fact, he explicitly says something to that effect at one point, like, oh, I don't want to damage such a beautiful fish more than I have to. Mm-hmm. And instead of, like, carving up it up what, right after he catches it or shortly after and putting as many pieces as he can on the boat, he loses the whole fish because he was unwilling to damage it in any way, um, which I think is kind of tragic.
0: Yeah, I also think about some of the things that we've talked about here in connection with his his growing disillusionment with his craft as he ages, right? Which I think is a natural thing, regardless of what craft. I mean, I've met teachers who got in it for the love of the game. <laughs> 30 years later, they're just like not feeling it anymore. It's a totally understandable thing that happens in a lot of different contexts. But I think when we when we compare things like his tools breaking down, or even his his appreciation for the sea, like you said Nathaniel kind of becoming his demise right his appreciation just for the beauty of the creature leading to him losing the whole creature um those kinds of things i think start to be like a, a really interesting draw really interesting connections to his growing feelings of of discomfort and 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 dis dislike maybe not is the, maybe isn't the right word but but his his growing disenchantment with with what he's loved for so many years right and i think I think a lot about how the limits of his body especially play into this, right? In a way, you get these sequences where he goes to extreme lengths and forces his body to the absolute limit. And it's after those lows that he begins to say things like, stupid body, stupid body. Why am I even out here? <laughs> right? Like, and, and t- again,
2: totally understandable feelings, but... Especially given, like, at that point, he's been basically awake for two days and <laughs> right has has only had, like, half a bottle of water. Yeah, and, like, some salted and fish. And some raw fish. Yeah, some dolphin. Not even salted fish, just raw fish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he wishes, he keeps, sorry, I kicked to the table, uh, he, he keeps wishing that he has some, that he had some salt or some lime or something like that, because he's just eating raw fish.
0: Yeah, and I think that this you know, has some really interesting parallels. Um, one of the things that I really want to talk about here, uh, kind of before we wrap up, is a really common read of The Old Man and the Sea, which kind of puts the text as an allegory about the risks of unrestrained ambition. We've alluded to this, but I want to talk a little bit about like what ideas from the text support that, and maybe what parts of the text make you think something else might be happening here. Um, one of the things that kind of immediately sticks out to me about this is this idea that he goes for the whole fish, like from the beginning. He commits all the way in. And he doesn't we, we've said a couple of times that he loses the whole fish, but that's not accurate, right? Because a lot of times what happens in this story is you kind of get this idea that he's going for the glory of it, right? He fishes deeper than anybody else because he wants the bigger fish than anybody else, right? And while that is a practical side, there's also a a prestige side of this too. Like everybody wants to bring home the biggest fish, right? And he brings home the biggest fish, but the glory is all that he gets. And I think that that's a really interesting thing, that not only does he lose the fish, he also loses his love for the game in a lot of ways, to bring back the sports metaphor, right? He loses, in many ways, his love for the craft. This is kind of the nail in the coffin for it. Now, I'm not saying the old man in the C2, the old man doesn't get back out there, right? But what I am saying <laughs> is that, like, we see it start to happen, right? We see the whole thing lose its luster, Right, We see it lose its shine. Um, by the way, Hollywood, if you do The Old Man in the Sea 2, I will come for you. I will come for blood like the sharks to that fish. <laughs> don't mess with me right now. I don't have the patience for another reboot. Um, but yeah, I think there's this really interesting idea that he loses not just the whole fish, but also his love for it, and then only gains the glory, the hollow glory, like as hollow as the skeleton.
2: I I did get the impression at the end of the book... Because um, I I agree that he kind of he comes back home with nothing but the glory to show for it, and it's a lot of glory. Like everybody, everybody is super impressed by what he what he does have to show, but they're also really sad for him. I, I did get the impression at the end of this story that there was uh, there was at least a moment um, when he has that final conversation between himself and the young man that he had in his apprentice a while like a while back that um that there was a little bit of hope for the future that he's become a little bit um he he wants uh he wasn't willing to have his pride wouldn't let him accept the the young man's offer of coming out fishing with him and the outcome would have been much different had there been two of them out there he he comments on that from nearly the very beginning of the fight with the fish that the outcome would have been much different in his uh in his experience had there been two of them and he uh and he finally one accepts the young man's offer to go out fishing with him again and he um and he's broken enough that it kind of seems like he's uh he would be willing to he's broken enough that he uh that he, it seems like he would be willing to not go as far or push as hard to get the big fish just to be a good fisherman and he um and he also his in in his terms his luck might have turned around because he caught a fish after not catching a fish for 83 days on the 84th day or 85th day or whatever it was he i think it was the 85th day at the end of the at fight, the end of the ark yeah he caught a fish again so there there was a little bit of hope at the same time he almost definitely had a heart attack so he might not actually get up again and uh he he might not actually get up again from where he's lying down sleeping at the end that that might be where he stays. But I I kind of I kind of got the impression that there was a little bit of hope. A little bit of redemption there at the end. I don't know if that read scans with either of you. Yeah, I would agree.
1: Yeah, I would too.
0: I think that there's definitely a like a an optimistic worldview present at the end of this, right? But it's all kind of couched in this I don't want to say like defeat, right? But in this kind of like I can't do this anymore, right? This is not Lethal Weapon where the guy repeatedly says, I'm too old for this shiz, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is not that because there are like three more Lethal Weapon movies and he's in all of them, yeah. right? This is the last Lethal Weapon movie where he is actually too old for this, right? Like, and I, I think that, yes, there's an optimism to it, but from here it's also like where does he go, right? He, his optimism may be coming too little too late, right? Because he had a heart attack like this is this ends badly for him right
1: well i I think that we can take a different um approach on the whole ambition theme. um Hemingway was an American writer, and there has been for a long time and still exists this belief in American society that you can become very economically successful merely through working hard. And I think that we can say that the old man works harder than anybody else in the story, um, and it bears him literally no fruit as far as economic reward. There is none to be had. And so, in a way, there's a commentary here that it doesn't matter how hard you work. You just sometimes don't get anything for it.
0: Or worse, you sometimes just get the glory. Not to circle back on this idea too hard, but I think about what Hemingway must have felt like especially in his final years, right? I mean, obviously, we're talking about a man who ends up dying by suicide, right? A, like a tr- a tragedy, right? Especially a writer of his uh, prolific talent to to be lost to the world in, in that way is just, especially given the mental health context and how poorly things were handled back then. Um, I imagine in in some way, and this is a little bit of my own mental fantasy, so we can divorce this from any serious critical read, I think, but I imagine a, a world or at least a moment in which he would see himself as having the bones of the fish, but none of the meat, right? All of the trappings and all of the, the external social rewards of being successful. Well, having none of the the internal or the personal rewards of being successful, and I don't want, definitely don't want to put words in Hemingway's mouth, right? But I I can see that as a as a parallel, right? How easy, and you hear a lot of famous folks talk about this kind of thing. How how the fame never, the glory never fills you, right? It, it's just bones, and I think that that's a really interesting thing, an uh, interesting way to look at this as well.
2: Yeah, it's um. Just my last, my last thought, kind of on that line, would be, he's um, Hemingway was also a was also a fisherman, who enjoyed sport fishing. It wasn't his living, but he enjoyed sport fishing. And at the end of his life, that was one of the things that he wasn't capable of anymore because of all of his injuries and health conditions. So I I think maybe maybe lending a little bit of historical circumstance to that read I think it could be a little bit more uh I think it could speak a little bit more to his mental state maybe not putting words in his mouth like you're like you were saying we don't want to do that but there there is historical circumstance to kind of factually back up that kind of that kind of read as far as what was going on and how his literal life compares to the life of this fictional character
0: Totally. Well, that's probably going to do it for our discussion on The Old Man and the Sea. Those of you who didn't read it but uh, were piqued by the discussion, it's a fairly obtainable book. Most public libraries have it, and a lot of public libraries are offering drive-up services right now where you can go pick up a book um, if you have access to university library, also a really easy uh, way to get in there. Um, check it out if you were interested in, in the discussion of Hemingway or, or fishing or Cuba. also recommend uh, his book, A Farewell to Arms another really good thing that uh like we alluded earlier highlights some of his experiences as an ambulance driver and even um the the difficulties of pregnancy that his wife faced uh were fictionalized in those events so so take a look at that novel if if this kind of thing interests you and if you're interested more about this this writer's life um let's do our our quick takes real quick how did you guys feel about this book did you like it uh and would you read it again
2: um, I probably wouldn't read it again. I en- I enjoyed it this time probably especially because of the format I got it through. I I listened to the audiobook and the reader who was reading it, I forget who I forget the name of the reader, but they did a really good job at conveying the conveying the emotions of the characters in an understated but powerful way that matched Hem- Hemingway's writing style. Very nice. I don't think if I were to read it again I would get the I would get the same Impact because I I just don't think I would read it in the same. Nathaniel talked about the voices in our heads. I don't think the voice in my head would make it as impressive as this one did. I think if I were to just try and read it on my own time, I'd find it pretty pretty boring. And also, it was kind of it was kind of a rough ride for me to see everything go wrong for him. So although I enjoyed it this time, I don't think I would put myself through that again.
0: Fair, yeah nathaniel what are your thoughts so
1: i'm fond of saying something that logan absolutely hates when i say we're about to get spicy which is i don't think i i liked it but i think it was super worth my time
0: drives me up the wall like Those are the same thing in my book, but it's fine.
1: <laughs> See, Logan, Logan thinks that pain and pleasure can
0: exist at the same time. They absolutely can. They exist on the exact same line. I'll write a thesis about it if you want.
2: But Nathaniel doesn't like spicy food, so oh. he's not a masochist. <laughs>
0: That's yeah, okay. Wait,
1: hang so he on. he doesn't
2: know the truth of that. Hang on.
1: <laughs> but I do like some spicy foods. You've got a solid point there. <laughs> um my my point though being um I could go, "Ooh, this was unpleasant. I didn't unjo- enjoy it because of its unpleasantness. But I got something out of it and I think it was worth the time I put in,
0: like exercise." What well, would you put in that time again?
1: <sighs> I think only if I was going through it for the benefit of another person who was going through it the first time, like if I was refreshing myself on what what's in it for somebody else who was reading it for the first time,
0: that's fair. That's fair. I love this book. I will read it
1: again. I, I, we know this. Yeah.
0: I. I. Am everybody ter- likes bad things. <laughs> this one won the Nobel Prize. I don't know what to tell you about. So this. everybody,
2: everybody I have talked to about this book about before, uh, before reading it myself. They all said it's incredibly boring, and I can understand where they're coming from. I mean, maybe this is just me, right? I,
0: well renowned, getting personal on the pot again, I have like a chemical fear of any water that is even an inch deeper than I am tall, right? Um, especially if that water <laughs> is dark or murky in any meaningful way, or stormy or choppy, or any basically any adjective other than still um, and chlorinated. <laughs> um, and so for me, this book. It could not be boring, right? It like it can't be because it's viscerally terrifying for me. Right? I think, I to read I a book that. about the sea and about the challenges that he faces on the sea. My two greatest fears are sharks and the dark. Sharks in the dark—that would be a game over screen for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going in that room. I'm not visiting that aquarium. It's not going to happen. Um, and so this becomes a, a very serious. I have to face my fears to read this book because of the way that it's written. And I don't think that's the experience many people have with it. Um, And so for me, I could never find it anything other than completely engaging and, and gripping. Right. And so I will be returning to it um, at some point before I die. I own it. So like, anyway, Um, thanks for sticking around. If you have enjoyed our talk about the old man and also our talk about the sea and our talk about the old man and the sea, we really appreciate you staying around. It's been a lot of fun to, to sit and talk about this. Um, next time, we're going to be talking about a very specific episode of one anime. I'm going to issue a content warning up front for the anime in general. We're going to be watching an episode of Attack on Titan, which people who are familiar with,
2: with anime will know is um, at times ghoulish. <laughs> Incredibly gruesome almost every episode. Not this one, and that's part of a big part of why I picked it. Um, yeah, it's worth mentioning as a comparison
1: point. Uh, Logan and I just played the game Bloodborne, which is uh, a relatively gory PlayStation game. It's bloody, gory, it's bloody, is yeah, not the right b- word, but, there, but there's gore and aspects of it in there. Um, but it's very bloody and it's very violent. And we played it and we didn't really think too much of the violence in it. Um, and I said to Logan, Oh, like you really think Attack on Titan's that bad? And he's like, Yeah, I almost puked watching it.
0: Everything I've seen from Attack on Titan, and I've never seen a full episode, but everything I've seen has been unpleasant so that's the content warning up front for the anime as greg said uh we're gonna be watching season one episode 14
2: it's a courtroom episode um and it has some interesting characters in there the you get a feel for the you get a feel for the politics of the courtroom and um you learn a little bit about the religion among certain people inside of the wall and um and uh you uh I think the, the most violent thing that happens is a character does get beat up on screen.
0: Yeah. But, would you would you like to give the conceptual pitch for this show? Just so people 'cause we'll have oh, the yeah. context. People people like me who will not watch episodes one through
2: thirteen and will only be watching episode fourteen. Um Attack on Titan is a post apocalyptic uh future that stems from somewhere like in the in the late 1800s to early 1900s type of a thing like that's when the that's when the apocalyptic event happened and the apocalyptic event that is still affecting the world is that there are these giants that eat people they're they're basically mindless and they eat people and they threaten to wipe out humanity and the remainder of humanity is sheltering inside these giant walls um yeah.
0: Yeah. Very important to know again to highlight the gruesomeness of this. These things eat people. <laughs> so like, and you see that. <laughs> you, yeah. It's yeah. Not in this episode though.
2: So that that is the content warning. That that is the uh that is the central tension is humanity versus it it's kind of a zombie esque sort of sort mm. of thing. Like a like a, you know, zombie uh a zombie movie where Humanity is fighting something that looks human, but is just going to wipe us uh wipe us out. Um it's very it's very graphically violent. Um that is what we're given the content warning here for. This episode does not have any of that. I skimmed through it recently. Um it it doesn't have any of that. It just has uh courtroom proceedings. Yeah. Uh for a court martial that's uh that's happening
0: great yeah so that's what we'll be discussing next time uh if you've liked what you've heard so far from podcast beep this noise go ahead and if your podcast platform of choice allows it like and subscribe look i'm pretty confident we could get good ratings if you only believe hard enough and press those buttons um yeah tell your friends who might enjoy listening if you also like it we don't do any kind of advertising and i don't really plan to so i mean that I guess that could change, but our best form of spreading this, if you like it, tell somebody and um, we would really appreciate that. If you do like it, reach out to us directly. We would love to have any contact with anybody in the void who is hearing this podcast. You can find us at, uh, on Twitter at keep this noise, all one word. You can also contact us by email at mail at peep I'd like to give a special thank you to Katie Davidson and the band key losers. They're the ones who allowed us to use the song. Don't know why from their album, California light as our show's theme song. I've, uh, Said this more often than the old man hates how much says how much he hates the sea and his aging body. But uh, it's a great album. Look it up if you haven't heard it yet. Uh, you'll have another chance to hear some of that bumper music here at the end. And uh, I really cannot recommend it enough. Uh, from one of my favorite labels too. To <laughs> diverge a little bit and, and say something I don't normally say. Uh, P.E. Elverum and Son. Uh, Phil Elverham is the guy behind the microphones was an early 2000s rock band and, and his current project Mount Erie are also personal faves of mine. And he, he owns that label and, and was the one who was responsible for getting that onto vinyl and, and the record production of that album. So all of those great recommendations, if you're looking for more in the vein of California light or Key Loser's work, check out Mount Erie or the microphones, both great projects from Phil Elverham. Um, yeah. Thanks again for listening to peep this noise and sticking around for a minute. Uh, remember. Everybody likes bad things. So
2: open up your mind Get the wind inside